This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 418. Hi, I'm Stephen M. R. Covey. I'm the author of Trust and Inspire, The Speed of Trust, and Smart Trust. If there's one podcast you can trust for compelling, thoughtful, and life-changing conversations every week, it's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Enjoy. Most organizations, teams, schools, and families today still operate from a model rooted in command and control, focusing on positional power, hierarchies, and rigid compliance. But because of the shifting demographics of the workforce, the changing nature of work itself, and the choices we now have for where and how to work, this old approach to leadership is both outdated and irrelevant. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that there is no better tool for your growth than books, than reading. In fact, I believe that if you want to be truly successful, then a habit of reading, learning, and growing is required. I am delighted each and every week to sit down with some of our world's greatest minds. Today's nonfiction authors, and the person I'm sitting down with today is one of my favorite. His name is Stephen M. R. Covey. He's author of a brand new book that came out last Tuesday called Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. I'm going to ask Stephen to share about the differences between motivation and inspiration and why they're worth noting. The issue of knowing command and control is irrelevant and the difficulty in acting accordingly. The fundamental beliefs of a trust and inspire leader and lots, lots more. I had so much fun recently visiting Richmond, Virginia to speak to the Virginia Council of CEOs and also to address the Richmond chapter of the National Speakers Association earlier this month. It's one of my favorite ways to share what I've learned from the books I've read over the last 25 years and the authors I've had the privilege to sit down and talk to. More than anything else, I love helping others realize their full potential. If I can help you and your team along those lines, or you're looking for a specialist to speak on those topics for your next event, I'd love to talk with you. You can reach out to me at jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Stephen M. R. Covey is co-founder and CEO of Covey Link and of the Franklin Covey Trust Practice, a sought-after and compelling keynote speaker, author, and advisor on trust, leadership, ethics, culture, and collaboration, he speaks to audiences around the world. A Harvard MBA, he is the former CEO of Covey Leadership Center, which under his stewardship became the largest leadership development company in the world. He is author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, The Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. And his brand new book is called Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. Well, Stephen, it is my pleasure to welcome you back uh, to Read to Lead. You're now in a an echelon of of guests who've who've now been on the show three times. Uh, there's a couple who've been on four times, so you're just behind a handful, but you're ahead of most over these last nine years. So, welcome back. It's it's great to have you. Hey, thank you, Jeff. I love it. I'm honored to be on this three <laughs> times, and it's because uh, I really admire what you're doing with Read to Lead. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and this is a chance, too, for me to just publicly thank you for last year writing a blurb for, for my book. Uh, that meant so much. To call it a splendid, worthwhile read was just a treat <laughs> for me to see those words in writing from you. So, so thank you for, for that as well. 
You, you are welcome. And I meant it. it, it, it it's, it's an extraordinary work, as is this podcast. So thank you so much. Well, well let's dive into to your book. This is now your third. Am I correct on that? Yes, my third, third book. So Speed of Trust, Smart Trust, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. I'm sure this one will be as well. I don't want to jinx it or anything, but I'm sure this one will be as well. Uh, let's get into the premise uh, of the very first chapter, and, and that is that the world has changed. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But what, in your view, are the emerging forces, to use your phrase, these emerging forces that you, that you lay out? I name five emerging forces of change. The first being that the nature of the world itself has changed through technology. Um, you know, you think about it, the pace of change, the amount of change, the type of change, disruptive technologies changed everything in unprecedented ways. We've always had change, but never like the pace and the type that's taking place now. You know, robotics, 3D printing, all these artificial intelligence, everything is exploding. That's the first. But then also the nature of work itself has changed. It's far more collaborative, far more interdependent, far more service-oriented versus traditional uh, industrial age type work. Now, we still have manufacturing and the like. It's just that there's more of a mental knowledge worker component to it. Third is that the nature of the workplace has changed. Right now, the, the whole idea of work from home, work from anywhere, remote work, hybrid work, some combination of all of this, you know, intentionally flexible work is just different. So people can, you know, live anywhere, work anywhere type of thing mm. in a way that that didn't happen just a few years ago. And the, and the pandemic obviously accelerated mm. this change in the workplace. But then the fourth emerging force of change is the nature of the workforce has changed. We have as many as five generations at work, but the big distinguisher there is that the diversity is so tremendous. And also, you know, the, the younger generations, so to speak, the Gen Z and uh, millennials have a completely different expectation of how they want to work and, and lead and, and be led. Mm. And, and so, so it's, it's more diverse than ever before. And then finally, the nature of choice itself has changed. We've gone from what we might call multiple choice to infinite choice, just so many options and choices. And so you combine all of these forces of change. I think the big thing, like you say, we kind of know the world has changed, but the implications of these forces of change are twofold. It's, and I call these the two epic imperatives of our time that are the results of these changes. And the first is for any organization that is going to work today, that they have to build a high trust culture that inspires their people in order to win that war for talent, in order to win in the workplace. And if you don't build a high trust culture that inspires, you're not going to attract people. You're not going to retain them. You're not going to engage them. You're not going to inspire them. And when people have lots of choices and they can work from anywhere and, and they have options, if you don't have that kind of culture, you won't keep those people and you won't win that war for talent. So that's the first is we've got to, I, I call this, my summary of it is win in the workplace mm. through creating a high trust culture that inspires people. But the second epic imperative resulting from all these changes with technology and everything is that we've got to collaborate and innovate to stay relevant in this changing world or else we'll fall behind and we'll become irrelevant as an organization, as, as a team. And so the need for collaboration and innovation has always mattered, but never more so than with all this change going on or else we become irrelevant. And I'm calling this win 
in the marketplace. And so those are the two imperatives, win in the workplace, win in the marketplace. And the, and the point is the old way of leading, <laughs> the old style of leadership, it's not going to work on those <laughs> two imperatives. You, know, you can't command and control your way to collaboration and innovation. You got to do that through trust and inspire. And this is the idea that it's the, it's the implications of these changes, these forces of change, the need for a great culture to inspire and the need to collaborate and innovate to stay relevant in a changing world. That's the implications of it. That's pretty significant for any organization or else they'll fall behind. What about the person listening right now, Stephen, who's hearing that word inspire or inspiration and maybe conflating it as I have done in the past with the word motivation? You, you draw a distinction between those, those two words. What is that distinction and, and why is it important we understand it? Yeah, the distinction is critical today because they come from two different places. So motivation tends to be external. It's extrinsic. Mm. And so you, it, it's something that you, moves you to something and through rewards, through external stimuli. So it's carrot and stick. Right. And, you know, so I, I give more rewards, the carrots, or I have bigger sticks, punishment, you know, <laughs> consequences. And the question is, do rewards work? Sure. They motivate you to want to get more rewards, but it's it's constant need for external stimuli to motivate, to move people towards something. By contrast, inspiration is intrinsic. It's internal. It's inside of people. To inspire comes from the Latin term inspirare, which means to breathe life into. So I'm breathing life into something as opposed to expire, which is to suffocate or take away life, to die. So inspire is breathing life into something. But the whole premise is it's already inside of people. And we're trying to ignite the fire that's already within. And the difference is that inspiration, when someone feels inspired because it's inside of them already, as opposed to motivated because it's external outside of them, but they feel moved to it, inspired is that that can live on Mm. for years when you light that fire for someone versus the need to constant, more stimuli, more external motivation. So inspiration is so powerful a force and people today don't want to be motivated as much as they want to be inspired. <laughs> and, and, and that's a big opportunity for any leader, any organization. And, and I also will add one last piece, you know, for years we've been focused appropriately. So on engaging our people engagement, employee engagement, engagement of stakeholders. That's critical. And I'm all in favor of it. we got to keep doing it. But there's another frontier of engagement. I believe that inspiration will become the new engagement, the next frontier of engagement. And there's already data on this that's emerging. A study from Bain and Company shows that that inspired employees are 56% more productive than even fully engaged employees. Wow. We've been focused on engagement. And again, I'm, I'm in favor. And I'm just saying that inspiration is the next level of engagement. It's another frontier that's out there that I think is where the puck is going, mm-hmm. to use the Wayne Gretzky metaphor, that he skates to where the puck is going to be. It's going towards inspiration. You mentioned command and control style leadership a moment ago. That's what was modeled for me early in my career. And so when I first became a leader, that was kind of my thing for a while until I I learned the hard way through losing team members, how irrelevant it was. Uh, But it's one thing to know how irrelevant that is. It's another thing to actually do something different altogether, isn't it? Absolutely. And that is the issue. Most people kind of would say, yeah, yeah, command and control, that's not going to work. We don't want to do that. But to know and not to do 
is not to know. Mm. Our challenge here is not so much knowledge, it's change in behavior, it's change Mm. in paradigm, change in actions of how we actually manifest our leadership because the data is overwhelming that command and control is still the predominant leadership style within most organizations and with most leaders. Now, look, they've become better at it. We've all become better. We've moved from what we might call authoritarian command and control into a more enlightened (laughs) command and control. We've become more advanced, more sophisticated. We've brought emotional intelligence into it. We've brought mission to it, strengths. So it's a better version of it. But still, our paradigm is still too much flowing out of the industrial age. It's just, you know, with with improvements added to it. But we really haven't shifted our paradigm of how we view people, how we view leadership. And so we kind of know that command and control doesn't work, but we're still trapped in it. And so, you know, I, I say three things behind it. First is what you just said that we know it, but we're not doing it. So to know and not to do is not to know. So that's our challenge is closing that gap, the knowledge action gap. Second Mm -hmm. is what I call fish discover water last. Think about it. They're so immersed in it. They're not even aware. And we are so immersed in command and control. It's in our systems, our structures, our language, you know, span of control, subordinates, um, our thinking, all kinds of structures are just so command and control oriented without even knowing it. We're so immersed in it. We're not even aware of how this has dominated our world. So we've got to break out of that. Mm. And finally, old paradigms can live on indefinitely. (laughs) And the paradigm behind command and control of of efficiency, you know, you want to be efficient with things, but you need to be effective with people. But too often we apply the efficiency paradigm, not only to things, but to people. Mm. And it's hard to kind of break out of these old paradigms, like bloodletting, 3,000 years old, but it lasted all the way until the late 19th century, even though a few hundred years earlier had been completely disproven. (laughs) And yet it lived on for centuries after it was disproven because Mm. it was so deeply scripted in the paradigm, the mindsets of of people. And command and control is still a deeply scripted mindset and paradigm that we haven't fully gotten out of. And so, yes, we kind of know that command and control doesn't work. And yet the data shows nine out of 10 leaders and organizations are still deeply into command and control. So that's our challenge is doing, not just knowing. Nine out of 10. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah. There's this idea of stewardship modeling uh, laid out in in part two of the book. I want to get to that in a moment. First, I want to ask you about some of the fundamental beliefs that you talk about in chapter four of a trust and inspire type leader. What are some of those fundamental things that a trust and inspire type leader needs to understand? Yeah. I'm glad you're asking me this question, Jeff, because this is the mindset. Mm. This is the paradigm. And, and, the, and the basic premise is that until you shift the paradigm, you won't shift the behavior. Mm. And style, your style flows from your paradigm. So if I have a command and control paradigm of how I view people and leadership, naturally my style will flow out of that. It'd be very hard to now shift my style to something that I don't believe. And so you got to challenge your fundamental beliefs. So here's what the fundamental beliefs look like for a trust and inspire leader. And I'll state these with in two pieces, mm-hmm. kind of the basic belief and then the implied action that needs to flow from that belief. Right. So here we go. I believe that people have greatness inside of them. So my job as a leader is to unleash their potential, not to contain or control them. Mm. I believe that people are whole people. And by that, I mean body, heart, mind, spirit. So 
My job as a leader is to inspire, not merely motivate. Now, look, if they were just economic beings only, then I could just motivate <laughs> through rewards. But they're whole people. They have a desire for meaning, purpose, contribution. So I want to inspire. I believe there is enough for everyone. This is an abundance mentality. So my job as a leader is to elevate caring above competing. It's fine to compete in the marketplace. That's good. But too often we're competing in the workplace with each other. We need to elevate caring above competing because there's enough for everyone. I believe that leadership is stewardship, which is more responsibility than it is rights. It's more duties and, and um, this responsibility versus a position. Leadership is stewardship. Therefore, mm-hmm. my job as a leader is to put service above self-interest because I have a stewardship to serve to those that I lead. And then finally, I believe that enduring influence is created from the inside out. So my job as a leader is to go first. Someone needs to go first. Leaders go first. Mm-hmm. Leaders are the first to model the behavior. They're the first to live the values. They're the first to extend trust. They're the first to talk straight. Someone goes first. Leaders go first. Collectively, these fundamental beliefs comprise a paradigm of how I view people and how I view leadership that is more accurate, more relevant, and more timely than kind of an outdated command and control paradigm that people need to be controlled Mm. and that people are economic beings only and that there's a scarcity mentality and that leadership is position and that, you know, we've got to work on structure and systems as opposed to going inside out. So when you start with that and you really focus on those beliefs, that's when the, you'll, you'll shift the behavior. And until you focus on the beliefs, the behavior will stay kind of in the old model of command and control. You mentioned the word uh, stewardship in that response, and you lay out in the next three chapters, five, six, and seven, these stewardship models, who you are, how you lead, and connect to why. Uh, Simon Sinek getting a nod here, as I recall. Yes. Um, uh, talk about those three aspects, if you, if you would. I call these the three stewardships of a trust and inspire leader. And again, stewardship being an implicit responsibility inherent in leadership itself. So the first, which you said, you know, who you are, my framing for that is modeling. And that's the whole idea that as a leader, you're a model. We're all modeling something. The question is, what are we modeling? So you see a stewardship, a responsibility to model the behavior you'd like to see, to model what we're trying to do, to model living the values. And in particular, I talk about modeling humility and courage. So important today, modeling authenticity and vulnerability. So important today, modeling empathy and performance, which is a paradoxical combination. It's really powerful together. So the whole idea of the first stewardship modeling is that leaders go first. Mm. The second stewardship, what you described as how we lead, the overall heading for it is trusting. I have a stewardship, an inherent responsibility to trust those that I'm leading. Because how am I going to bring out the greatness in them if I don't trust them? If I don't trust them, I'm just trying to contain them or control them, but I'm not unleashing them. I'll unleash them by trusting them. So I have a growth mindset, not just for myself, but for them. And I trust them, trusting. And it's interesting because here's what our research shows. You could have two trustworthy people working together and yet no trust between them, Mm. even though they're both trustworthy 
if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. So to have trust, you not only have to be trustworthy, you also need to be trusting. Mm. You have to be willing to give it. And when you give it, people receive it and they return it. There's a reciprocity of trust, plus they're inspired by it and they rise to the occasion, they perform better and you tend to bring out the greatness in people. You help communicate their greatness. You see it, you communicate it, you develop it, you unleash it through trusting. That's the second stewardship. And the third stewardship, then connect the why, that's about inspiring, that we're inspiring others. We have a stewardship as a leader to inspire those that we're leading. And that's kind of a paradigm shift that, that leaders need to inspire because most people think that to inspire, you got to be charismatic. And I'm trying to separate charisma from inspiration saying mm. everyone can inspire. Inspiring others is a learnable skill. And how do you inspire? By connecting with people and connecting to purpose, to meaning, to contribution. Mm. And so this idea, this stewardship of inspiring is, is kind of a big breakthrough that if we need inspiration as opposed to motivation, who provides it? Leaders do. Leaders inspire and you can, you can inspire when you learn to connect with people through caring and belonging and connect to purpose, to meaning, to contribution. Those are the three stewardships, modeling, trusting, inspiring. That's what's asked of us as leaders in our world today. Thank you so much for, for unpacking that. I really appreciate that. And, and I love the point you made about separating charisma from being an inspiring leader for so many. I think that they're breathing a sigh of relief right now, having, having heard that. So thank you for that. What are some of the maybe more common hurdles or, or pitfalls that trip us up on the way to becoming a trust and inspire type of, of leader? Yeah. An overall pitfall to becoming a trust inspired leader, a barrier is this, that I, I think that I already am one. <laughs> hey, I'm already <laughs> trust and inspire. You know, mm. seriously, this, the biggest barrier to becoming a trust and inspire leader is that we think we already are one. And so we're not really challenging ourselves on this. We're kind of saying, yeah, I believe all those things, but are we doing them? Are mm. people experiencing them? I'll give you just one illustration of that. In trusting and that stewardship, people overestimate how much they think they are trusting to compared to how their people think that they are trusting mm. by three times, 300% wow. higher. So in surveys, these are in surveys. When you ask the leader, do you trust your people? They say, yes. The people, when they're asked, does your boss, does your leader trust you? No, <laughs> 300% gap. You know, so we think we already are one, but really let's test this and challenge that. That's the overall biggest barrier. But in particular, a barrier will show up of saying, hey, this trust inspires a nice idea, but this won't work here. <laughs> this mm. won't work here. You don't know my boss. He's really command and control. You don't know my company. We're a command and control company. You don't know our industry. We're in a highly regulated compliance-based industry. It's all command and control. Mm. So that's the first one. This won't work here. Mm. You know, and we got we to gotta work in our circle of influence and say, you got to work from the inside out. Um, another one is fear, you know, fear in all of its forms. You know, mm. but, what, but what if I lose control under this trust and inspire? Or, but what if it doesn't work. I tried it. It doesn't work. Or, but what if I've been burned before? I have tried it and it didn't work at all. And I've been burned. Or what if I don't get the credit if I trust people and they get all the credit? Mm. What if I'm not as confident as you think I am? <laughs> I'm a little bit, you know, I got the imposter syndrome type of thing. Yeah. So a lot of fear-based barriers. Another one is, I just don't know how. I like this idea of trust and inspire, but how do I do it? How do I learn these stewardships? How do I learn to trust in a way that's smart and not a blind trust? Mm. And another one is for some kind of like, well, I'm the smartest one in the room. <laughs> and so 
my way is the better way. And I might go through a charade of listening to people, but at the end of the day, the smartest one in the room kind of thinks that I've got the best idea. Yeah. And, and so they, they really have a hard time challenging themselves of trusting others because they think they're the smartest. No one would admit to that. Mm. That's often the case. And finally, the idea of, for some, you know, just, this is who I am. I, this is what made me good. I know how to lead from the way I've been trained in it, raising it. It's where I've gotten to my career. But to quote Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there. Mm. So you may have had success with this old style. It may be who you've been, but you can change your style. Mm. And, but for many, that's a little threatening. And they say, well, I am who I am. But if, you are, if you're command and control, even enlightened command and control in a new world, it's not going to work going forward. So those are some of the barriers that get in the way. But I think the overarching barrier is that we think we already are one, mm. a trust and inspire mm-hmm. leader, and we're not quite there yet. You know, as you talked, I, I can't help but think of, of my last leader, uh, somebody who I've mentioned on the show numerous times for being what I would call a trust and inspire type leader uh, and had that default of trust. Unless you gave him a reason not to, he was going to trust you 100% and understood and wasn't afraid to leverage the collective brain power in the room and spread credit every chance he got and if appropriate, shoulder a part of the, of the blame too. Uh, so, so kudos to Matt. If you're listening, uh, thank you for being an entrusted inspired type leader. That's beautiful. That's Jeff to hear that. Seriously, let me just ask you this question, Jeff. Sure. So, Matt, being that kind of leader, what what did that do for you? Well, it it inspired me. <laughs> it made me want to like like disappointing him would be the worst thing I could ever do. Yeah, like disappointing you know a parent. Um, the worst thing I could do was disappoint him. So I began every day basically thinking, how can I make Matt's job easier today? How can I make him look like a superstar? Yeah, that, well, that's beautiful. What happens when someone believes in you, someone trusts in you, someone models this, and then they say, I believe in you, Jeff, and you don't want to let them down. Mm. And that's internal. See, that's intrinsic. That's inside of you that you feel this way and you perform better. And, and plus, it's energizing, it's more fun, and that's a better culture. You love working for that kind of leader. Mm. And I'll bet we've all had someone that was the opposite. That at some point in our career, we've had a command and control leader. And you, 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 just, you do the minimum or you do what yeah. you need to do, and, but it's not at all what you just described. You know, that, this is what I mean by trust and inspire. We need more mats out there <laughs> that are doing this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the best tribute I could give to him was dedicate primarily my book that came out last year to him. Boy, uh, so that was a real treat for me too. Um, well, uh, one of the, the things I love about a book like this, it's obviously applicable to every leader on the planet, but it's also applicable to every parent, every teacher, every coach, isn't it? Absolutely. In fact, um, all throughout the book, I'm giving personal examples family examples, community examples, Mm. education examples, you know, teaching athletic examples, because it's applicable in all of life. The key to becoming a trust and inspire leader is to first become a trust and inspire person. Mm. And if you start with that of, you know, this is who I am as a person. And I have these beliefs about people. I see their potential and their greatness, and I want to bring it out. And I also believe that as a person, I'm trying to you know, serve and to care and to model and these types of things. And so it's how I, it's how I view life. And, and so 
yes, you can apply it to parenting. Mm. You know, and I was raised by trust and inspire parents. I'm fortunate. I acknowledge many, if not most, probably maybe haven't been, but maybe ha- many have as mm. well. You don't have to be perfect to be trust inspired, by the way. You know, how you see your, 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 your kids or your nephews, your nieces. So you can apply it to parenting. Absolutely. And in fact, I think that's maybe where it's most exciting when um, you see your role as a parent to really help your kids see their potential and to recognize it. And then you help them develop that potential and then you help them unleash it. That is the most satisfying thing there is. <laughs> and and um, teaching, we need this in education so much. Uh, education tends to be as an industry, if you will, command and control mm. with compliance and all kinds of issues and you know standardized everything. And, and the thing is the, per, the mission of education is the most noble mission in the world mm. to, to really educate our children to be contributing productive citizens. And yet there's a big gap between style and intent there. The Mm. intent is to do this. And yet so many teachers feel undervalued and unappreciated and not trusted by parents and by principals and by administrators. Mm. So many principals don't feel trusted by administrators, by superintendents and like, and yet so many superintendents of schools don't feel trusted by the communities. And, Mm. and we're, we're in a vicious command and control cycle that needs to break. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need to counteract it with a trust and inspire, a, a trust inspired district, trust inspired schools, trust inspired teachers, just unleash this potential of every stakeholder, every student, parents, et cetera, coaching, you know, that's the last bastion of command and control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's got to change athletic coaching. And, you know, you can apply it to any walk of life. We want to become a transition figure. A transition figure is someone whose interactions with another can literally help change the trajectory of that person's life because of how they believe in them. Sounds mm-hmm. like like Matt maybe did with you. And mm-hmm. I've had that with me, with my, with my father, with the first boss, John Walsh, changed the trajectory of my life because mm-hmm. of what they did. And we can become that kind of transition figure for others, a trust and inspire figure versus a transaction figure, just another mm-hmm another person in the, in the long line. So I think that that's maybe my favorite part of this book is yes, I'm applying it to the leaders, but I'm saying also everyone is a leader and parenting is leadership and teaching is leadership. And even being a good community member is leadership. So you could apply this in every dimension, every aspect of life. And that's actually the best application of it. Well, I want to ask you a couple of questions related to habits and, and questions not connected to the book per se. But before we do that, uh, in the time we have left, anything else you want us to know about the book? The only thing I would say, I've already mentioned this, but I want to kind of just add one last piece to it. Mm. The idea of that third stewardship, inspiring, that inspiring others is a learnable skill. Mm. The reason I want to just add something is that that's such a paradigm shift that, you know, because a lot of our listeners might say, well, you know, I can't inspire. How am I going to inspire? And again, it's because we've just too often connected it to charisma. Let me tell you, when you do the first two stewardships, you're already inspiring others. Think about it. When you model the behavior, that inspires people. Hmm. A study from LRN shows that leaders who are humble inspire their people 18 times higher than more arrogant leaders. Hmm. So when you model the behavior of humility, you're inspiring people. When you model, you're inspiring. When you trust people, that inspires them. Like your example with Matt, Mm. trusted you, it inspired you. So by doing the second stewardship, trusting, 
you're already inspiring people. So between modeling and trusting, you're already on third base to use the baseball metaphor. You know, and what brings you home is just that last stewardship of inspiring, of connecting with people and connecting to purpose. That's more now explicit around the act of inspiring. Modeling inspires, trusting inspires. And then when you connect with people by just showing that you care about them, that I care about you as a human being, I care about you as a member of my team because of who you are, not just because of what you do on the team. Caring is the motive. Like the common expression goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when they feel that you care and believe it and experience it, it inspires them. So caring at an interpersonal level, belonging at a team level, when you have a sense of belonging on a team, that inspires people and you can help create that sense of belonging. So that's, I call connecting with people through caring and belonging. And you can, any leader can do that. And then connecting to purpose, to meaning, to contribution. And any leader can do that too. You try to find the ways of saying there's purpose in what we're doing. There's meaning in what they were doing, where there's contribution. And I believe that you can create and embed purpose, meaning, and contribution into almost any role, into almost any organization. Just a quick example of this. John F. Kennedy gave the charge 60 years ago, mm. put a man on the moon, return him back by the end of the decade safely. And like a year and a half later or so, he's walking through a NASA facility. He comes across a janitor and President Kennedy says to the janitor, who are you and what do you do? And he says, um, I'm so-and-so and I'm working to put a man on the moon. I mean, it had reached the end of the row. He had a purpose. And look, that was embedded into that job. So my point is you can create an embed purpose, meaning and contribution into almost any role, into almost any organization. Mm-hmm. And that you can do as a leader. And when you do that, that inspires people. So my whole point is we can get good at inspiring as leaders. It's a stewardship. And it's learnable and doable. And, and you do the three stewardships, you will be doing this. You'll be inspiring. It will be an outcome. So I just will highlight that one because that's where the puck is going towards inspirational leadership. Well, I have identified five personal habits that uh, I find that a lot of the people I talk to on this show practice to some degree or another. And I'd be curious to just get your take on each of the five. And when you practice these five, you're more likely to realize your biggest dreams and your highest priorities. And so the first one is this idea of dancing with discomfort, doing things that, that push you outside your comfort zone, maybe scare you a little bit. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, do one thing every day that, that scares you. So how important is it in your view that, that, that we practice stepping outside our comfort zone on a, on a regular basis? I think it's critical. I think that's where growth happens. Mm. And if we, if we remain in our comfort zone, we don't grow. And it's kind of like, Someone said, I've got 17 years of experience. And for some, that might be true. But for others, it might be, no, you've got one year of experience that you've repeated 17 times. <laughs> Big difference. And, and the difference is, are you going outside your comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Are you pushing the envelope and learning new things? And, and, um, and if you're not, if you stay in your comfort zone, you'll have one year of experience repeated 17 times. Mm-hmm. If you go outside your comfort zone and do something every day that scares you a little, you know, I'm not asking you to be extreme about it, but I love how you say it. You know, on occasion, we go outside of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. That's where the growth happens. And, you know, having a growth mindset for ourselves and for others is critical. And you do that by leaving your comfort zone. 
The second one, ritualize your reading. What advice would you give to someone who maybe recognizes that that's a habit they need to start, but and maybe desires to, but they're just struggling getting that habit rolling? What would you say? Don't overthink it. Start. <laughs> Yeah. Start because so many times we have all these big books and, you know, I, I, I have a book list and, and I'm sure most our listeners do, mm. but it's very easy to kind of be overwhelmed by it. So you just, you just start. And what I find with rituals on reading is that they tend to emerge as you find some patterns and opportunities. And let me tell you uh, mm. for, for me, what's happened. I find that I am doing a lot more reading now as I'm listening to books. And I start by listening because I'm always, I try to exercise every morning. I started putting books on. I started listening to books and, and I, and I said, you know what? Wow. I like this. And I actually can do both. I can exercise and listen and I like it. And when I really like a book, I find myself buying the book too. So it's good Mm -hmm. for the authors because I'm, I buy the book, you know, on audible and then I buy it, the physical copy too. And, and, um, but I, I kind of have developed my own ritual that I didn't intentionally plan it. It kind of emerged and, and, it, and it happened because I just started. I said, I got all these books I want to read. And I just started saying, let me try listening to it. So find a way that works for you. They might be different for everyone, but rather than kind of trying to find the perfect way, just get started. Just start reading. Just start listening. Just, uh, just don't wait until you've found the perfect formula and that <laughs> you say, well, as soon as I get through this and I'll start reading, just start doing it along the way even if you do a little bit. And I think what will happen is you'll see that there's such growth that comes from it and stimulation and intellectual development that you, you, you'll just find, you'll create ways of saying, I'm going to prioritize this. You'll, you'll, rituals will emerge when you, when you realize the value that comes from it. We're talking about habits here, of course, and the irony is not lost on me that this is a topic your family knows <laughs> quite a bit about. <laughs> the next one I want to go to is what I call examining your energy. It's the E in the acronym. And uh, I'd be curious to know throughout your career, what are some of the methods that you've witnessed others leverage, or maybe you've leveraged yourself? Maybe this gets into big rocks territory uh, in order to increase the amount of time you spend in areas that give you energy and maybe less than the amount of time you spend in areas that zap your energy. I think this is a critical um, habit that you've identified here because the idea of what I learned from Jim Lehrer, who wrote the, the book, The Powerful Engagement, that managing energy, not time, is the key to high performance. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you don't manage time, you do, but your energy matters. And so the idea of identifying activities and people who energize you and trying to spend more time there and, and engage in that and to become a self-aware of activities that zap you and that drain you. And, and just try to say, how can I minimize those or cut them out if possible, or at least minimize them, or maybe reframe them to become less draining? You know, some of it might be a reality as part of your world, part of your job, but you're trying to either reframe it, minimize it, delegate it, or cut it out altogether. It starts with self-awareness. So what excites you, what energizes you, what drains you? And even a lot of my work on trust shows this, that in high trust relationships, that is energizing. Mm. It's fun. Low trust relationships is draining, is exhausting and no fun. Mm. And so I focus a lot on this as well. Energy and joy flow from trust. And so for me, I, I try to focus on building high trust relationships. That's my way of knowing if I build trust, 
that energizes me in those relationships. And there's a lot more joy. And when there's low trust, then that saps me, that drains me, that exhausts me. And so I either try to build more trust in that relationship or minimize my interaction so I don't get drained and exhausted if I'm not able to build the trust. Mm. And so yeah, I've, I've reframed this mm. around trust, my, my, my core life's work. Mm. Um, the next one, assemble your advisors. This is sort of the idea of having your own personal board of advisors. And I'm talking in most cases, though it can be uh, peers at work. Uh, oftentimes, I think of this as those outside of work, people you're meeting with on a regular basis. You maybe have similar goals as you are like-minded, but you're meeting with on a regular basis, either in person or online to to encourage you, to challenge you, to hold you accountable. What does your experience suggest about the importance of having a group like that? I think it's a significant advantage that many people really have not implemented. And I like how you have mentioned all those elements, encourage you, challenge you, hold you accountable. Mm. I've seen some people do this under the idea of challenging me. I want to be challenged and I want to be held accountable. And I think those are two vital areas. You know, some of the people that see the world differently, they're going to challenge you Mm. and maybe you're going to help you see something or uncover a blind spot or, or become self-aware, right. and, you know, that could really be helpful to you. The idea of holding accountable of, you know, Hey, I'm going to be accountable to someone around these things I'm trying to do maybe outside of work. That's, that's another key role. The one I want to highlight though, is your first one to encourage you mm. where I've seen people do this. I've often seen it more around challenging being accountable. And I, I love those. Yeah. Those are two vital roles. But let's make sure we also, in our assembly of advisors, mm-hmm. let's make sure we also have people who encourage us by, they, they are people who believe in us. They are people who see our potential. They are people who maybe see more potential in us than we see in ourselves, because we all need that. We need people who believe in us. I think any parent should be this for their child, their biggest champion and cheerleader. That doesn't mean you don't want to challenge them and hold them accountable. You do. As a child, you want someone to believe in you. And that needs to be a parent and it needs to be a teacher and a friend and lots of people can do it. But I'm just saying, assemble your advisors. Yes. And all three dimensions of that. I think you've Mm -hmm. got three vital roles of this. The encouraging role of someone who believes in you and sees your potential. That is the one I want to highlight. Well, thank you for saying that. And that comes from my own experience, the groups that I've either led or, or, or been in peer-related groups, uh, that's, that's been vital. If, if there wasn't that encouragement element, I'm, I'm not sure that <laughs> I, would, I would stick around or show up most times. It's a vital element for sure. And thank you for confirming that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, a lot has been written about this last one, uh, no doubt there. Master your mornings, the M of the acronym. I'd be curious to know how important to you a consistent morning routine is, and if you're willing to share maybe a bit about how your mornings tend to unfold. You mentioned exercise being one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, my father in the seven habits of highly effective people, he calls this the private victory and private victories precede public victories. Mm. And the whole idea is that you, you, you know, you have your personal connection. That's your inner life and your private life that then enables you to go out and have your public success. And Mm. because you first, you you go inside out. And so the idea of a daily private victory and, and, and around four key areas, body, heart, mind, spirit, the whole person, when I talk about in trust 
and inspire mm. whole person, body, heart, mind, spirit. So for the body, it's exercise. And that's why I try to exercise every day. For the heart, it's relationships. And the idea, I'm not always able to do that first thing in the morning. Mm. But what I try to do first thing in the morning is to think about at least one person each day with whom I want to connect that I may not connect with if I didn't think about it. In mm. other words, they're not necessarily right in my path. So I'm trying to think of someone I'm saying, either a family member or a friend. And I just try to identify someone and say, okay, throughout today, I may not be able to do it this morning, but I want to connect with this person, even if all I do is text them. So I want to connect. That's the heart, the social. Then the mental is I want to engage my mind and my intellect. I listen to books. I'm doing the physical and the mental at the same time. Mm. I'm listening to books. And then the spirit, which is holistic, meaning the desire for, for mattering and making a difference. And, and every day, what I do when, I'm, when I start my exercise, before I listen to the books, I, I do some affirmations with myself where I review my personal mission and purpose and, and, um, and then my personal values. I just rehearse them in my mind as a ritual to just start my day with that as I begin my exercise. And then I move to my, my other. So I, I'm efficient with it. <laughs> and then I'm trying to, I try not to say, gosh, if it takes too long, I won't do the morning ritual. So I'm trying to do it in a way that works for me, but I'm trying to cover those four areas, body, heart, mind, spirit, being a whole person. And then I find that that engages me in a profound way where I feel inspired and ready to take on my day. And, and there it's a routine. It's a ritual. The power of ritual is critical. That's another key learning from the Jim Lair work. The power mm. and full engagement is the key to managing this energy. And also your performance is rituals, rituals, because then you can do them better. And so I'm not perfect at this. That's mm. critical, Jeff, and be clear on that. Mm. I'm not perfect. And there's some days I don't follow the ritual because I had a presentation at three in the morning in a foreign country because I'm doing it virtually. Right. And so, you know, I just, I got as much sleep as I could. And I said, I'm going to do my ritual later. And, right. and uh, I do, but I do the best I can. Mm. And I know that there's a power to it. The daily private victory leads to public victories. Mm. So that's the key. Well, thank you for indulging me with each of those five. I appreciate it very much and, and appreciate the, all your insights related to, to each one of them. Well, and what I would add to it, Jeff, is dream big is a big book. You need to do this. It's a, it's a big idea. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, uh, Stephen's latest book, again, the one we've been talking about today, it's called Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Stephen. Thanks for coming on to talk about this book. Absolutely, Jeff. It's always great to be with you. And I appreciate your sharing Trust and Inspire, this book, with our listeners everywhere, because I felt inspired to work on this, to write this. And I hope that it has a similar effect on our, our readers so and our listeners as well. Thank you so much. Always great to be with you. You know, since Stephen and I have sat down twice before, I chose this time not to ask him to recommend some of his favorite books. But don't forget, he did mention that book along the way, The Power of Full Engagement by Jim Lear and Tony Schwartz. I just ordered a copy of it myself. I encourage you to as well. You can find a link to that, a summary of our chat today, and links to Stephen's work and how to find him on the web if you want to connect with him, as I have. All of that is on the show notes page for this episode. That's a blog post on my website specifically for this conversation. 
You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 418 for episode 418. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 418. In the weeks to come, we'll be talking with Ron J. Gulati, Whitney Johnson, Jordan Rayner, Mark Miller, Brian Moran, along with Michael Lennington. And next week, it's my friend Joe Saul C. As we dig into his book, Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Hey, thanks for giving me your time today. I really appreciate it. That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember leaders read and readers lead. Read.